Well, guys, I want to go ahead and apologize. I'm going to give you the same disclaimer I gave first hour. Uh, basically, the reality is this. It has been a long time since I've had to go through a service without nap, uh, snack time or nap time for any of it. So I'm going to go ahead and apologize if you hear my stomach start a grumbling because it's almost lunchtime. So uh, when we started thinking through this, I really wanted to figure out a cool way of thinking through this. And it made me think of how I'm always asked, why kids ministry? Um, it is a regular occurrence for me to have to have a discussion with someone to explain, I'm really not crazy or uh, have psycho or anything like that. I just genuinely have a heart for kids and families. I mean, why wouldn't I want a job where I get to play Legos, eat snacks all day, right? Um, that's what I signed up for. So the reality of it is that I do have a heart for kids and families, but I wanted to think about even more why. And I am really basically a giant nine-year-old. So I like toys, corny jokes, cartoons, comic book stuff, you know. And the thing I like about comic books, now I don't really like reading them. I like the pictures, right? Because giant nine-year-old, but I love that every comic book has a hero and a villain. And when we dig in, every one of them has an origin story. Now, an origin story is a story that's going to tell us how that hero or villain became who they are, why that hero or villain feels the way they do, maybe what makes them tick, but it's also going to be about that tragedy that led them to be a hero or a villain. Now, we're not in a comic book or a movie or anything like that, but very much in the same way, we have an author that has written our story. And he knows you better than you will ever imagine. He knows what makes you tick. He knows what makes you thrilled and joyful. He also knows where those insecurities are. See, this author has written more stories and created more amazing places and things than DC or Marvel Comics could ever dream to create. And your story and my story are some of the greatest creations he's ever written. So, as we dig in today, I want you guys to come with me because I'm going to tell you my story. So, guys, second time it's ever been told, Josh Wright's origin story coming up, ready? Okay. So my mom had me, when, when she got pregnant, she was 17. Junior in high school, 1985. I saw a couple, ooh, yeah. So for many people, when they uh, hear that, they're like, oh, wonderful family. Nope. Mom told my dad, my biological father, that she was pregnant. And he bolted. He had no desire to be a part of our lives. So for many people, they're going to hear that and they're going to go, that's where his origin story starts. But the reality is, is it actually takes place much earlier than that. Now I want you guys, if you have your Bible or just grab the screen, but we're going to go Psalm 139, 13, and 14. It says, for you created me, you created my innermost being. You knit me together in my mother's room. I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. See, my mom had me at 17, right? 1985. And she was a kid trying to raise a kid. In a lot of ways, she knew that she was not ready for this. But my grandparents weren't super keen 
on being that supportive because they felt that by being overly supportive, maybe it was gonna send the message they were supporting bad decisions. So in that moment, my mom tries to figure out what that looks like for her. And she's insecure in the fact that she's gonna be able to raise a little boy into being a man. She's insecure in the fact she's gonna be able to provide financially for that little boy. Now, I want to stop right there, and I want us to think. What would it have looked like? Because I sometimes ponder how it would have been if my mom would have had the support that maybe she felt that she would have needed. And then I think, well, what would it have looked like if she would have walked into the local church August 1985 as a single, out-of-wedlock mother? Now, we want to believe that it would have been great. She would have been received well. But we also know, especially then, there was a good chance it would have went just as quickly the other direction. And that's one thing I want us to think about as a church family here at MCC. Which church are we going to be? Are we going to be the church that when a single mom comes in, we look at them with judgment and condemnation? Or are we going to be a church when a single mom comes in with that new baby, that we look at them, smile, and they know they've just been welcomed home? You know, the Bible tells us how we're supposed to look in this matter. Matthew 25 Uh, 40 tells us, the king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. See, I want us to be a church that's going to lean into that. And I'm thankful to be at a place where I truly believe each and every one of you, if you were to see that single mom walk in or that single dad come in, that you would rush to them and welcome them with open arms. That this would be a place where they feel secure and they feel welcomed. That they don't have to worry about their insecurities of being judged, but they will know that they are in a place that represents the Father's love. And that when they leave, they may not have, that kid, that mom, that dad, they may not have experienced the love of an earthly father that would lean into them in that moment, but they would leave knowing that they experienced the love of the Father. Let us be that church. So back to my story, mom, 17. So she meets a guy named Mark because she thinks I need a dad. She needs a husband. Now, the thing about Mark is he really was not the ideal husband or dad. So my earliest memories in life are not great. They are of my mom being hit, beat, bloody noses, broken ribs on the regular. A lot of times I hear people talk about things that their parents taught them and maybe they got taught to ride a bike is the first thing they remember or maybe they got taught to swim or maybe they got taught to do something like that. My very first memory of my mom teaching me anything was when she taught me how to lie to police when they came and asked what happened. So that kind of gives you an idea of what it's going to look like growing up in that household. There were times my mom legitimately did not know if she was going to make it. And I will tell you this, I had never had the concept of death explained to me, but there's something, when you see that, you just know it's not good, no matter how old you are. So my oldest memories track back to three, four, five years old of seeing this. And then one time, it got a little bad. I was five years old, probably a couple months away from being six, and we were staying with one of Mark's friends because the way it worked for us 
is we would have a house for three to six months because that's how long it would take for you to get a house, uh, pay the deposit, pay a month's rent, and then let them have time to evict you. Because we were, gonna, we were basically just renting for two months and planning on living there for six. So we were living with one of Mark's friends in that moment, and it was a particularly bad day. They weren't there. It was just my sister, myself, Mark, and my mom. And I remember, and I don't think I shared this in first hour, but I remember her face that day. And she thought she was going to die. So in her fear, my mom, not knowing if she was going to make it if she stayed, got in the car and drove off. Because she knew that Mark wasn't going to beat us. The only physical stuff we had had were maybe a spanking that went too far. There was some emotional uh, and verbal abuse. But at that age, that doesn't really click as much. So she knew from a physical standpoint, we were going to be safe. And if she was going to be in our lives, she felt she had to go. Well, when she left, Mark's like, okay. She told me she's not coming back. So he packs me and my sister up and we go to someone else's house. Now, I didn't realize it at that time, but they call that when it's not your kid and you take them away from the mom, it's kind of called kidnapping. Um, now, I do want to preface this. It's not the kidnapping we think about when we see the news. Like, yes, I was not with my mother, but in my eyes, I was with my dad the entire time because that's how I had been raised. Mark was my dad. So when the cops came to pick me up and take me home, I'm sitting in there playing Nintendo like, uh, like nothing's wrong. You guys remember that Nintendo game with the, that you would run on and everybody would just smack it with their hands because they weren't fast enough to beat the guy running? That's what I was doing. So I was like super happy. I was fine. They had Nintendo at this house. We don't at ours. Mom wasn't happy though. <laughs> so I get picked up, taken with, by the cops, and we meet my mom and... It's probably been a week or two. I have trouble tracking that time, of course. But during that amount of time, my mom had already found another guy. Her insecurity in being able to provide even for herself, her insecurity in being able to stand on her own two feet continued to be a, a common theme in my mom's life. Now, this guy and her, they seemed to be hitting it off, but after a couple months, I guess it wasn't working out. And it was actually the year I started first grade, and I had been in maybe two or three days of school when mom told me, hey, we're not going to be living here anymore, but we have something fun planned. We're going to camp in the car for a couple days. Okay. Camping sounds cool. I don't think I'd ever done it. So for me, maybe this is how everybody camps. They just go sleep in their car, hang out. Not quite the case, as you guys already know. We didn't have anywhere else to go. So mom, trying to figure out what she's going to do with this little boy, did all she could. And she sent me to live back with Mark. So six years old, I go and I live with a guy who has a huge drug problem, has a huge alcohol problem, and has been physically abusive emotionally and verbally abusive. And on top of that, he's never going to be around. So at six years old, I had to learn some things because we lived in a house we called the thump dump. Now, I know why we called it dump. 
it was terrible. I mean, this place was garbage, you know what I mean? Uh, actually, it was just garbage. It wasn't even good enough to be French garbage. It was just garbage. <laughs> and I think we called it thump because if you would have thumped it, it probably would just fallen apart right there in shambles. To give you an idea of the thump dump, it was a one-bedroom house, and I think we would have to classify it as a quarter bath because we had a toilet. So at six years old, I am having to get up, set an alarm clock, find, a, find food, breakfast, get on a school bus, go to school, act like everything's okay because you don't raise red flags. That's been very much instructed. You don't let anyone know that something could be wrong. Come home, no adult present, let myself in the house. If he hadn't taken my key, because there would be a few times I would have, have my key hidden under a paint can in a cabinet. Because I didn't want to take it to school and have anyone think I was at home alone. And sometimes in his bender, he would lose his keys and take mine. And I would have to sit on the steps and wait for him to come back. But when I did have my key, I would go in. You have to make sure you take a bath because if you smell, you're going to raise those red flags. So I had to, I'm, I'm like one of only probably like four and a half people in America that's my age that took a bath in a metal drum because they had to at some point. Like, that's not normal. Even if you're poor, that's like poor, poor. So I just had to learn how to kind of take care of myself at a young age. How to be there for a two-year-old little girl because sometimes the babysitter would drop her off before Mark got home and I had to lie and say he was sleeping. There were many times that I remember feeling that this just wasn't normal but couldn't really branch it to anything. See, one of the moments that was going to take place that would probably really start my insecurities was about to happen. Because when I was living with Mark is when he had a fight with my mom that same year over the phone. He hung up and I'm like, Daddy, Daddy, what's wrong? It was at that moment he proceeded to tell me that he was not my daddy. And that for all he knew, my mom did not even know who my real dad was. That was the beginning of me feeling rejected. That was the beginning of my insecurity in knowing that not only did one father not want me, now there were two. What was awesome, though, is that at the end of that year, I did get to move back in with my mom. My mom was back with that same guy. And... In a lot of ways, things were so much better. But the reality was, is we still had drugs in the house. There was still alcohol in the house. And there were a lot of people who would come to our house because of those things. Those are the kind of things that make you wonder. And as a child, where the home is supposed to be the most secure, safe place you have. You don't know if you're going to get a call and the police are going to show up and take you to foster care. So even in my home, I was living a very insecure life. Not just emotionally, 
but also about the physical things around me. The plus side, though, about living in that home is at least we had food and we had those things that we needed on the regular. And that was super helpful. And I remember that um, when I was living in that house, mom was parenting me different than I recalled. See, I think because of my mom's rebellious nature and she felt that my grandparents pushing her and being strict on her made her rebellious, she leaned the other way. So when she was parenting me, she definitely fell out on that grace side more than the discipline side. So for my mom, the things that were going to get me in trouble is disobeying or disrespecting people. She was very big on manners and things like that. But I could do pretty much what I wanted. The day I started sixth grade, my mom started explaining to me about if I felt the need to do adult things, that I needed to have a discussion with her so she could make sure I was protected. Sixth grade, 11, probably still 10, the day the conversation happened, years old. So that's the way I was parented. Parties? No problem. You can have them at our house. We can keep people safe. Uh, you want to go do stuff you're not supposed to on the weekends? Go for it. See, the reality was is my mom felt so strongly that she had been led the wrong way because of that. And she was so insecure in her ability to be a parent who disciplined a child because she was worried I would do the same thing that she leaned in so hard that I fell into some of the things that she did, just not as bad. So here I am in high school, I'm starting high school, and I just want to be liked. Because there's something that happened when I was 12. See, when I was 12, I had probably a year prior told my mom that I knew that my real dad wasn't Mark. Up until that point, we had never had that discussion, I don't believe. And I was asking a lot of questions about wanting to meet this guy because in my head, I'm so, I'm just wondering why I'm not good enough. Why didn't he want to be a part of my life? And those insecurities were not going away. And it was in that moment that one day my mom called me. I was at my friend Zach's house and she goes, hey Josh, I'm coming to pick you up. We got something we got to do as a surprise. So okay, I'm thinking we're going like, I'm going to go to Toys R Us, get a baseball bat. or Like, there weren't a lot of good sporting goods there, so Toys R Us. Uh, maybe I'll get, like, a go-kart or something. I, I didn't know, but I, I knew I was going to get something cool. And then we pull up at the park, and I'm like, why are we at the park? I don't want to go to the park. This, you know, there's no cool stuff at the park. It, it, it was the worst park ever. But we pulled next to a truck, and a guy gets out. And I looked at him, and I never seen him before, and I immediately knew who he was. My mom said, do you know who that is? I said, yeah, it's my dad. We hung out for an hour or two, and he proceeded to tell me a bunch of things about how he's sorry he wasn't around and made a bunch of promises about how we were going to get to know each other. And that that weekend, he was going to come get me so we could ride four-wheelers and get to know each other as father and son. Cell phones weren't around, so I had to stay home. I was gone every weekend to a friend's house, but not this weekend. So I hung out at the house, sitting by the phone for a phone call that never came. So there I am, once again, rejected. Wondering, why am I not good enough? That really steamrolled the insecurities going into high school. 
See, when I started high school, I just felt that maybe if I get everyone to like me, and maybe if I make a bunch of jokes and make everyone laugh, that I won't feel this way anymore. And people will accept me and I will feel loved and needed. So through that, hanging out with the wrong crowd, partying. But none of the adults really knew what was going on in my life because I was like a chameleon. I was going crazy with my friends at night or on the weekends, but during school, I'm probably top 20 in my class, co-captain of the wrestling team, captain of the soccer team. Beta Club, National Honor Society. I was one of the top volunteers in our school to the point where I actually won an award for volunteerism. I'm going into schools and telling kids in special needs class that they can be whatever they want to be, they can do whatever they want to do if they work hard, and here I am going crazy on the weekends. And the only people who knew are who I wanted to know because I learned how to hide it back to those original things I learned as a small child. But it was during that same time that I fell in love with a sport, and that sport's wrestling. Now, I'm not talking about like WWF, WCW. We didn't throw people through uh, tables or anything like that. Sometimes it might would have felt better to have been thrown through the table through some of the stuff we did. <laughs> but it was through that sport that I met a guy named Matt Houston, and I didn't realize it at that moment. But Matt was going to be the first thread of what God was weaving in my life of how my life would be changed. And it was through that first meeting with Matt that I eventually would come to know, not the love of an earthly father, but the love of the father. So Matt and I, we get really close. We're practice partners. Every day we wrestle. Uh, it gets pretty grueling at times. You get pretty competitive. Um, you know, bloody noses, all that stuff. It's usually the better friends you are, the more beat up you walk away from practice. It's kind of weird how that works. But we got really close. And one day in practice, I go to throw Matt and he lifts. And when I come down, my shoulder just explodes. <laughs> the previous year, my season been cut short because of an injury. Shoulder. And there I am looking at my coach, asking him to pop my shoulder back in, begging him not to tell the trainer because that year I was actually doing well and it looked like I might make a run to go to state. And in the back of my head, I'm going, this will be the thing that finally makes people like me and accept me. I'm not getting to do it. My season's over with the next day. When I walk to school, I find out he had to let the trainer know. So I'm done. And at that moment, it felt like one of the worst things could have ever happened to me because wrestling had become my life. But in actuality, it was the greatest thing that ever happened to me. Because through that moment, I was outside a few weeks later in the car line. You guys, raise your hand if you know what a car line in a, in a school looks like. If you're not familiar, car line rage is way worse than road rage. <laughs> People go crazy in that car line. Like, I, I'm pretty sure that the worst of every person that has ever happened happens in a car line to pick up kids after school. So we're at this car line, and it's like in peak season. You know, there's like 100 cars backed out. Probably not, but that's why I remember it, right? And uh, they're around like two miles down the road and all just craziness. And here's this woman pulls up. 
in a big gold Suburban. And she starts screaming, Josh Wright, Josh Wright, come over here. See, this was Matt's mom, Paula. And I will always be Josh Wright to Paula because she has a son named Josh. So I am Josh Wright. And it started that day. Josh Wright, come over here. And I walked over to her, one, kind of slow because she kind of seemed crazy at that moment. I knew her, but not real well. I'm like, eh. And two, I'm like, is she going to pull out of the car line so I can talk to her? Because... I don't want to go talk to her. People are going to be blowing the horns. I might get hit because they're so mad that I'm stopping traffic. But she said, I wanted you to come over here because we feel so bad that you got hurt wrestling Matt. And I just wanted to pray for you. In the car line. So, real quick. Next time you get ready to blow your horn because you're mad about that car line, you better stop. Don't know who's getting prayed for up there. Okay, guys? But there's this woman who I don't know very well, stopping, slowing down, paying attention, taking time. And in that moment, I was the only person in front of her, not the car line. And she prayed for me. And growing up in South Carolina, I always believed in God. Like we hear a lot about God, but everybody believes in God in South Carolina. (laughs) Everybody's Christian. Yeah, I'm Christian. But I didn't believe he loved me. I just thought we were like Netflix. Like, oh, I'm going to see what Josh is doing today. Yeah, that's kind of boring. I'm going to check out see what Trent's doing. I don't, I don't know if it's that way. I don't think so. But I definitely know now that there's love because in that moment, also, I'm sitting there and I feel so guilty this woman's wasting her prayers on me because I didn't even love myself enough to pray for myself. But I also was so thankful that I mattered to someone I barely knew that much that they wanted me to know that I, they, they hoped I would be okay and they were praying for me. That relationship continued to grow and then the summer after I graduated, uh, or summer after my junior year, Matt got his license. He came pick me up first day of summer. He picks me up, we go to his house, we're hanging out, you know, just chilling at the house and Wednesday rolls along. Matt grew up a church kid, always at church. His mom worked at the church. That's just what happened. So he goes, Mom, he goes, Mom, hey, wondering if I could drive to church tonight. She said, no. Traffic can get bad on it. You got to go to interstate. It's going to be nighttime when you come home. Don't want you to do that. So Matt did what any respectable kid would do. He begged. Uh, and, and that was when Paula, after a little bit of begging, it's like she, she saw a correlation. Like God just told her, what she was supposed to do. And she looked at Matt and she looked over his shoulder because I was behind him. She said, if he goes, you can. You can drive. The fix was in. <laughs> a few weeks later, I accepted Jesus as my savior. Um, damn. There was a part of me, I think, in that moment that thought my life was going to get easy. It was going to be smooth sailing. Nope. If anything, there were times that it actually got much harder. And one of those was coming right up because during my high school years, my mom had a hysterectomy. That hysterectomy, they gave her pain medication. They gave her a lot of it because that was when they gave a lot of pain medication. To someone who has an addictive personality, it was game over. 
So while I grew up in a house with drugs and all of those things all around, my mom was never an addict until I was in high school. And when they quit giving her the pain medication, she felt the need to find something stronger and figure it out herself. So mom becomes a full-blown addict when I'm in high school. So day after I graduate, I'm sitting down again. Life's getting harder. I'm a Christian. What's going on, guys? Like, this doesn't make sense. I thought it'd get better. I'm sitting down eating at um, Matt and Paula's house, the Houston's. And it was the day after graduation. I'm eating breakfast. I was first one up because I had so much on my mind. Paula walks in. She could immediately see something's wrong. She said, Josh, what's wrong? I said, I just don't feel like I can go home. She said, don't worry. You don't have to. You can stay here. I called my mom and let her know what was going on. And, you know, my mom, I would say this. She struggled to know how to parent me. She never struggled to know how to love me. If I knew anything about my mom, it was that she thought I hung the moon and that she loved me and thought I could be something special. She just didn't always see that in herself. So I let my mom know, and out of her love, she never fought me. She said she understood, and that was when I moved in with the Houstons. Now, again, Things going good. I'm living in a Christian home now, right? Nope. <laughs> a few years later, mom's drug issues are still getting harder and harder, worse and worse. And at this point, I'm working third shift, you know. And uh, I call my mom and I say, Mom, how are you? And immediately, she starts talking and her words aren't even able to be deciphered. She's slurring. She can barely speak. And I remember saying something to the effect of, Mom, I love you, but I can't talk to you like this. Please stop. You're going to kill yourself. I love you. I'll call you later. I'll talk to you later. And that was the last conversation I ever had with my mom. Ten years ago, October 9th, she died. And it was one of the hardest times I ever experienced, but it was in that pain of losing my mom I really went to a dark place again. And again, I'm like, everybody I've ever cared about has left or everybody I've ever wanted to care about me has left. And I really started dealing with these insecurities and, and wondering why I can't have my mom and why am I an orphan now? Because I'm having to do paperwork at school and they say, you're an orphan. You have to fill it that way. But in reality, all of this again was leading me up to know the love of the Father in a way that I couldn't imagine on my own. And what he was doing in that moment, again, we don't always see what God's doing in front of us because we only see the hard things or, or the good things. The pain at that moment had me blinded to what God was actually doing, and that was he was preparing me for my wife. Because before that, I was not ready for her. I'm gonna tell a secret. Ladies, please don't be mad at me. I kind of said all you guys were crazy. I was never getting married. I have learned that's not the case. It's probably me that was crazy. But that was where I was. I was never getting married. So mom passes away. I meet Lindsay. And I'm talking to my buddy Josh who eventually did our wedding. I think we've been together two or three months. And I'm like, you know what? I'm going to marry that girl someday. But six months prior to that, you would not have gotten that answer from me. 
So God was already moving and working. And through that, Lindsay and I, I felt really, really strongly we should serve together in the kids' ministry because I had already been serving in the kids' ministry since I was 16 and became a Christian. See, when I moved in with Matt, Matt's family, Paula was the children's pastor. Yeah, it's set up, like I told you. <laughs> she was the kids' pastor, and when you lived in that house, every two months, you were going to be helping with Memory Verse Sunday because you were voluntold you were going to be helping for Memory Verse Sunday. You sleep here, you eat my food, you serve in my class when I tell you to. I was always first one. I'm like, yes, ma'am, don't kick me out. Please let me live here. <sighs> so we started serving together every week instead of me serving every two weeks. And it was through that time that Paula started saying, Josh, you know, I've been telling you forever, you're going to do ministry. Like you're, these kids, they need a man that they know has been through stuff and you've been through stuff and you're funny and you, you can relate. You're going to be working with ministry somehow and it's probably, you know, maybe kids. I'm like, I, I told him first hour, it came off very much like Talladega Nights. Don't you put that on me, Ricky Bobby, but it was Paula Houston. Don't you put that on me, Paula Houston. I fought it. I fought it. But see, Paula knew a secret that I didn't know. Ephesians 2.10. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Here's the thing. I may not have felt worthy, but God already had made me worthy. In him. I may not have seen those things in me, but Paula started calling them out. Sometimes we just need someone to tell us what we can't see. And she was there to do that for me. So we're volunteering every week. She's still telling me we're going to do ministry. She had some part-time teachers quit in the class we volunteered in. I happened, because you know, yeah, God, God has all these coincidences. I happened to walk in the door. <sighs> She happened to hang up right at that moment and said, Hey, Josh, uh, such and such just quit. And you think you and Lindsay want to be part-time teachers? Paula, I will help you for a little bit. <laughs> but don't get any ideas. This is just temporary. Six months later, I think I accepted the job as the assistant director of kids ministry and went full-time into ministry. Set up. <sighs> Through that time, Things didn't always get perfect or easy. Again, actually in a lot of ways, they get more difficult. But now when things get hard, I don't have to rely on Josh. I can lean into the fact that I have the Father's love and that he is there for me. I may never have experienced the true love of an earthly father, but every day I don't have to live in my insecurities because I get to experience the love of the heavenly father who loves me and you more than we could ever imagine. Where are we today? I have a beautiful wife, Lindsay. We've been married for almost 10 years. We have three wonderful little boys. Judson, who's six. Jameson, who's four. And Jet, who will be two in December. They are probably the reason for my gray hair. At 36... <laughs> And I also am now here with you guys. See, I always yearned 
for that acceptance from my father. But again, there's something so much greater. Romans 8.15 says, The spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought to you your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. I may not have known my dad. But in a lot of ways now, I can, while it was hard to figure out how to see God as the father, now, because I didn't experience that, I can lean into it so much more. And what I want from you guys today is, again, be present. Pay attention. When people walk in, know that there are kids just like me who are going to walk in that door. There are kids here in McDonough, here in Henry County, who have had worse lives than me. There are moms like my mom who are going to be afraid, sitting in the car, wondering if they can walk in this place without someone looking at them like they've just done something wrong. There's going to be dads that come in here that sit in these seats, and some one of you may need to step up and say, hey, why aren't you taking care of your kid today? Our place isn't just to do these things when it's comfortable. And I want you to know that it's so easy to get consumed in our everyday life that we miss those opportunities. So what's the challenge? Be present. Open your eyes. And never miss an opportunity to be someone's Paula to be someone's Matt, to be someone's Mr. Tom. Because there are lives that you will impact in a way that you could speak into that I never could. Because each one of us is unique and each one of us has a different story and you never know, but you may be the only one that could speak to that mom, that kid, or that dad. Don't miss it. So back to the original question. Why kids ministry? I feel called to kids ministry because I believe that God allowed all these things to happen in my life so that I can look at these kids and be there for them and them know that they're not the only ones who have ever experienced the things they're experiencing. I do kids ministry and family ministry so I can talk to a mom or a dad and say, you know, I may not have been there now, but I was the kid that was there. As you're struggling to parent, we're here with you. That's what I can do. There's another group of people I didn't speak to first hour, but there's some of you in this room. You're still holding on to that insecurity. You haven't let the Father take it on yet. I encourage you, fall into his arms. Hug him tight. He loves you more than you'll ever know. And if you struggled to know your earthly father, if you didn't feel that love, you didn't feel any kind of parental love, know that there is a father who loves you more than you'll imagine. And he can't wait to spend time with you. Let's pray. Father God, Lord, I just thank you for uh, your love, Father. I thank you that you are bigger than our insecurities, Father. I thank you, you are bigger than our fears. And I thank you that when we um, are in a moment where we feel lost, that you are still there. Thank you for everything you are, for all of your love. And we just pray that we are a church that glorifies you and represents you.
Thank you for loving each and every one of us. In Jesus' name we pray.